0: You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens. And today we're talking about how to block and tackle, figuratively speaking, with your retirement planning, uh, but also literally speaking, because today I'm talking with Jeff. Fain, who is a ten-year NFL player as well as a successful business and social entrepreneur, Jeff, uh, welcome to the show. First of all, thanks for having me, Andy. And we have to start with football, right? Because you played at Notre Dame. I mean, I obviously I went to Notre Dame. Jimmy, my business partner, he's Notre Dame super fan, so I I have to ask about you know your football career. We got to start there. So you're your ten-year NFL career, though, it began with the when the Browns selected you in the first round, which was a twenty-first overall selection in the two thousand three NFL draft. Is that right? That's correct.
0: Yeah, it was a uh, really, really uh, amazing experience to to get selected in the first round, uh, especially as a as a center. Uh, you know, and so it was something you know, dreams coming true type type scenario uh, is is a great experience.
1: Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I want to talk about football. I'm a huge Browns fan, right? You know, I grew up in Ohio. My dad was a big Browns fan. So obviously we're going to talk about football, but it also leads into what else we're going to talk about today, which is a really interesting investment strategy, retirement planning strategy that I think a lot of our audience is going to be interested in. Um, but the story begins in the NFL. So just to, to bring our listeners up to speed, if you weren't a big Browns fan, um, following your couple three seasons i believe in cleveland Mm -hmm. then you were traded to the new orleans saints you were a pro bowl alternate in 2007 according to my notes and then uh then you played for tampa bay and you finished your career with the cincinnati Bengals. so you wow you played 125 games and you started in all but one of those games that's a pretty amazing stat jeff
0: Yeah, no, it was, it was a good run. I I enjoyed it. Uh, my time in Cleveland getting drafted there is special. It's a, it's a football city. It's it's amazing. Uh, the the passion that they have, especially with the, (laughs) with the record that they've had over the years, um, (laughs) you know, you you gotta be passionate, you know, um, totally. and, And then getting traded down in new Orleans, one of my favorite cities in the world. Um, it was a great time to be there. It was, it was after the, uh, after the terrible storm Katrina, uh, and so we 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 kind of saw the the city come back to life right in front of our eyes while while we we're playing and being a part of that process, and I got to go back to my hometown team. I'm originally from Florida to pay, play for Tampa, sign my big free agent deal, to play there, and uh, got a cup of coffee on the way out in Cincinnati. Um, it was a good run. Uh, I had to, had the you know blessing to be able to play in London twice and, and do some really special things and and be a part of a lot of special locker rooms, and so. Uh, I love the experience.
1: Yeah. And, and at one point, um, you were the highest paid center in the NFL. I think I'm, I, I think we're allowed to talk about money and income. You know, it's all, all this information's public with athletes, yeah. right? For better or for worse. It's all. And, and up there w- with the left tackle, you know, it's center left tackle. These are two of the higher paid positions because they're really important positions, but really al- almost anyone in the NFL by definition high net worth individual or high income individual when you played in the NFL you were surrounded by other highly paid athletes right other high net worth individuals so where did you learn about finance and investing you know did did you begin that process as an NFL player or were you already you know fairly fairly familiar with with finance and investing you know from studying in college or where where did you kind of get an interest in finance?
0: A lot of it really came in, in my experience, you know, kind of, you know, quote unquote in the streets of, you know, after getting drafted, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't because, you know, of anything at Notre Dame. Ultimately I was a, a liberal arts major. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't really know that eventually I wanted to get into business. Um, but it just happenstance, I made a, met a guy named Bobby George in Cleveland, Ohio. It ended up being, uh, my first business partner and still a business partner today and and it was it was exposure to him and what he was doing and and really the kind of phase that he was in his life we were about the same age he just graduated from college and and it was just a perfect match where you know I got super lucky to align with someone that you know, it really placed my interests in front of his where that it just isn't the case a lot of times with a lot of athletes and a lot of the guys that the you know kind of kind of uh, involved in their circle and things of that nature. And so it it worked out really, really well uh, from from that stance that that's what kind of put me into it. And I used to go to his office and used to be in the office and just was soaking it all in and just learning and learning and learning. Um, And as I got into this, you know, as a client, I I purchased a, a life insurance policy. It happened to be premium financed. I was 26 years old at the time. And so that that experience as a client you know really kind of led me into uh the business that we're doing today. but it was the exposure there that really kind of piqued my interest and and allowed me to just uh to to learn and and be a part of that you know frankly the one of the one of the huge benefits of being drafted early and and you know really having some great income as a professional athlete was I had a lot of time on my hand in the off season to be able to do a lot of things that I just, I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't part of, a, you know, d- dealing with a day job that I can allow for me to be able to do other things and learn other, other options and, and, and figure out different ways to do things. And so I, I definitely took advantage of that opportunity and, and, and kind
1: of really pushed that forward. In your experience to a lot of, you know, pro athletes, pro football players, are they thinking ahead? Cause it sounds to me like even in your 20s, you're already kind of thinking ahead. Like I'm not going to be a pro football player forever and I don't want to necessarily retire at age 34 or 35 when, you know, and so were you already, you were already kind of thinking ahead. Is that rare in the NFL? You think we're, we're athletes are thinking about their next career.
0: Yeah, it is a little rare. You're, you're so focused. You're so, you have to be so focused on, on your career. And and really a lot of stuff takes backseat, including your family, including your friends, like everything, frankly, you know, your world, everybody that's in your world kind of revolves around you for for better or worse. And, you know, I I give a lot of, I get a lot of kudos and thankfulness for my wife. And at the time we weren't married, but we were dating and we were dating for a very long time, but for her to be able to essentially have the patience with me, you know, because when you're, when you're playing, when you have, when you have a game, there's, you know, there is no question of whether or not, what, what are you doing this weekend? No, like you're, you're going to the game and you're, you're being a part of that. And I'm speaking more of your, your family and friends. Mm-hmm. And so that is something that, you know, you, 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 you have to be able to understand is that's so it's the primary deal, but really where this focus on a transition or, uh, life after football or other things beyond football started very early for me, and it started before I started playing uh, football. Frankly, uh, it's I was always a great athlete growing up, uh, playing other sports, playing basketball, playing soccer, playing baseball. You know, really playing everything. I didn't play football until high school, and a couple different reasons, mainly because I was too big. Like there's uh, weight limits when you're you know kind of uh, uh, little league football in this, in our area here in Florida, at least. And so, but very early on, my parents just drove into my head that there was like playing professional athletics is not an option. Like you're, you're you you need to be focused on your, your, your academics and you need to be focused on your grades and you you know, you need to be focused on, on, on where you're going to be able to drive a career. My dad was a Naval officer for 22 years. My mom was a school teacher and that just wasn't in the cars to think about, Hey, this is an option to be a professional athlete. And so even when I got, started getting recognition, went to Notre Dame started getting recognition there, even when, you know, we didn't, we were so naive about the whole process because we just didn't buy into it. We didn't buy into the hype. We didn't buy into the fact that like, we felt like, like it was going to happen. And so when it actually. So it, did, it
1: wasn't your plan A, Jeff, it was kind of, you know, for a lot of people, it, we plan Plan A and then plan B might be this other business stuff for you. It was actually maybe the other way around. Exactly. Just, exactly.
0: Okay. And so it never, and that never went away. So even when I was in the pros, it was still like, all right, what's, what I'm focused and I'm, and I'm, I'm giving everything I got to the sport and I'm doing all the things I need to do to, to prepare, but it was still, all right, what, what is next and what else can I be doing to, and so it made the transition for me much easier than it is for a lot of guys. Like that's the, I think the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway would be is that the transition from playing a sport that you loved your entire life or for, the, for a good part of your life to now it's over. And now what, uh, that was, it was never, I never had to ask myself now what it was, I had I, been working on that in parallel lines while I was playing.
1: Totally. Okay. And we're going to talk about the now what, but I have one more football question. Um, I did play offensive line. I only played football one year. This was like in sixth grade. So my understanding of the position is very low level. It's not non-existent though, but at the highest level, I guess, what's the hardest part of playing center specifically? Because it always... You know, I always thought about playing center. It's like a lot of pressure, right? I always felt like, you know, at guard, you can kind of hide. Like, I'm in between the tackle and the center. You know, I know that's not really true. But when you're the center, obviously, you have to snap. You have, you know, long snaps. Uh, I presume that there's a little bit of leadership involved. And, you know, are you the quarterback of the offensive line? What, What are some aspects of the position or maybe the hardest aspect of the position that a casual fan wouldn't know about?
0: Yeah. So you, you hit on a bunch of them. Um, the cool thing about playing offensive line is you're a part of you're a team, like within a team, mm. um, you're all working together and, and really to play offensive line. I, I I got a book coming out and one of it, it, it's it really generated, it's really centered around being an offensive lineman and taking that, that perspective into the business world and into the nonprofit world. And, and, and it's really, the book's called working for others. and, and that's and and that's what you're doing as an offense. Wow, line. I love but, that. I love yeah, that. <laughs> I mean, that's it's it's what it's all about. And yeah. it's such a cool, like I, I I talk about. If there was more offensive linemen in the world, like, and I'm not saying you know everybody needs to be, I'm, but I'm saying that personality, that the way that you think, it'd be a it'd just be a much better place. Um. So some of that, like, for, to, to the casual. To, to the Capitol viewers that might be watching football, some of the more difficult things—you know—you you know, you, you know a, a lot of them. It's more mental than anything. You are the quarterback in most cases of the offensive line. You're making all the calls. For a lot of t- a lot of times, for a lot of the teams I played for, I was making all the calls for for the running backs and the tight ends, getting everybody on the same page. Um, and then you're you're basically in a street fight every single play with the guy in front of you that's trying to just rip through you to get to the you know to get to the quarterback or get to the running back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, those are all things that are, it's, it's pretty challenging, you know, being that quarterback of the, of the line and, and knowing, you know, basically everybody's job, being able to tell everybody what to do, if you kind of think of it in that lens, when I played for the Bengals to end my career, I signed with them 10 days before the season started. I, I thought I was done. you know, ultimately I was starting to transition to, to be able to move on from football. Um, but I signed with them, their center went down in preseason. And so I signed with them. And I literally had to learn a playbook in 10 days and, and not only learn a playbook, but learn like how to make calls for the offensive line that they had been together the entire offseason. I had to learn their language. And I know it might sound like it's not that big of a deal, but when you're, when you're, you, you get a play in the huddle and you get down on the line, you got about 10 seconds to, to make calls and get everybody on the same page. And you know, you're, it you're it sounds
1: like a big deal to me. I mean, it kind <laughs> of reminds me of everybody has a plan until you get hit in the face. Right. So, you're trying to be cerebral, and uh, you know how. And, and, st- and you still
0: and you still and you still got to have this physical battle with this guy in front of you. That's yeah. <laughs> that, by the way gets paid to do that too. Like it's yeah. not it's not like you're you're playing against a chump <laughs> across the line, you know. And so yeah, it it, it, it that was a challenging year. It, it was great though. I I I tell people often that year it, it was it, it was it was me making sure that it was out of my system. Um, you know, I ended up getting a call from the giants and I, and I, and I, and I turned it down. I walked away, you know, basically on my own terms to be able to retire. Um, but it made sure it was out of my system and I still miss the game. I'm passionate about the game. I love it. I love, I I still love it, still miss it. But, um, but that year made me, uh, be able to accept the fact that it was time to move on. That's
1: awesome. Sorry. What was the name of the book again? I loved it. I love that concept. Working for others. Working for, you know, That kind of is a great segue into what we're talking about next with this life insurance stuff. One of the big themes at Wealth Channel that Jimmy and I talk about a lot is building generational wealth in the sense of you know, being independently wealthy or building independent wealth or financial independence. That's a goal of many, right? But the next level of wealth development is generational wealth where it becomes, I'm not just trying to grow my wealth to live a nice lifestyle. Although that, that's fine. No judgment on that, but it's the mindset shifts, you know, especially with, uh, ultra high net worth or with family offices where you start thinking of yourself more of a steward, right? Right. Because at at a certain point, you know, unless you're out buying, you know, crazy sports cars every two weeks or whatever, you know, at the ultra high net worth or family office level, You've grown your wealth to a point where it's going to outlast you and you become more of a steward. And it's a little bit of a different mindset. And another part of the mindset that I think shifts is you have to focus more on triple net returns, right? Which is not just, you know, if you're in that beginning stage of your career, you're maxing out your 401k. It's all pretty simple, right? I can put all this money in a target retirement date fund, I max out my 401k, make my house payment. And I don't have to pay taxes on anything in the 401k. That's great. Once you're a high net worth investor, everything changes. Where the the tax ramifications of everything become a huge piece of the picture, right? Where um, you know did, uh, an investment that looks good on paper, pre tax, might end up being average or below average or negative after tax. And so, turning now to your company and enhanced funding solutions. This is a concept you learned about while you played in the NFL, and it and it sounds like it worked for you, and it 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 also sounds like it's a very tax advantaged product. So why why don't we start there for for those of us who aren't familiar with PFLI, uh, or or really how it works? Could you just give us a walkthrough of of this this strategy?
0: Sure. So permanent finance life insurance, Uh, as as I mentioned, I purchased my policy at twenty six. So I, I really experience this through the lens through the lens of the client first. Uh, we bring a lot of that experience in what we do. And so just like anything else in, in in the world and really in the financial world specifically, it can it can be done right and it could be done wrong. Um, you know, you can get you can you can be, you know, kind of play within the within the the buoys or you can get super aggressive and you know, and and in those situations, when structured improperly, um you know, you can get hurt, and clients can get hurt, and you know things can go sideways. And 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 really, what life insurance is is really intended to be is is the de- it's really intended to be that dependable asset that you can rely on when other assets are having volatility. That's really you know, if it, it, structured properly, that's how it, it should be uh, viewed. Unfortunately, when you get super aggressive, that's not necessarily always the case, but. The great thing about premium finance life insurance is, and, and just conceptually, just high level, you're utilizing a, a lender's dollar and you're enhancing your contribution, your dollars to a very tax efficient asset that can grow tax-free, that you can access uh, capital out of it tax-free if structured properly. And then that ultimately transitions to the next generation tax-free again, if, if structured properly. Um, and so that I often tell clients that we work with and advisors that we work with that you're really, you know, for the most part, a lot of our clients are securing this for tax code. That's, that's, it, it, you know, oftentimes it's not even necessarily initially for the death benefit it's for tax code. It's like, how, how do we maximize, uh, the value of our dollars by, by really enhancing it by a lender's dollars to be able to fund this tax efficient
1: vehicle. Understood. So, you know, couple, I guess a couple questions about it. Are you typically investing a lump sum, or are you committing to pay like an annual premium over time?
0: Great question. And and, and while we're talking about um, premium financing, and we do we have other other ways to be able to utilize the life insurance policy with other different financing methods, but specifically with premium financing, it's it's not a one size fits all. So, clients could do a lump sum. Clients could contribute over time. You know, there's there's a bunch of different ways to be able to approach it. Um, what what is most used and and how it's most executed is some type of continuous uh, contribution into the program for some duration. You know, five, seven, ten years, fifteen years um and and typically that is it, it's it's over time but you can certainly structure it where it's just a nice lump sum deal where you're you've made a, a contribution in a lump sum fashion but you have lender premium that's coming into the life insurance policy over time to maximize the the, the use of the the death benefit capacity so majority of these policies but it's not all of them lion's share of them you're maximum funding them and and you know typically what that means is there, there's a code, and, and we can get a you know slightly a little technical here for a moment. But there's a code seven seven zero two and an IRS code, and ultimately what that is is a description uh, and definition of what is life insurance. Mm-hmm. And there's a formula; it's called a meck test calculation. is based over a seven pay seven years of of, con- of premium contribution or what the maximum. Amount that you can put into that life insurance policy for that sp- pre- prescribed death benefit, and for it still to be considered life insurance, a dollar over that, and it, and you lose all the tax benefits that really kind of come along with life insurance. And and um, you know, if you access the money, it becomes taxable. Things of that nature. If it becomes what's called a mech, a modified modified endowment contract.
1: Understood. So we're no strangers to um, you know utilizing the tax code, you know, legally. Because, because again, you know, once you are a high net worth individual, certainly once you're like a a family office, you essentially, you have to, you know, all of your investments, your total portfolio, you know, the tax picture is such a big part of that picture. So, you know, a lot of these products, like, you know, we've talked a lot about qualified opportunity funds on the show and opportunity zone type investments or 1031 exchanges and DSTs. Uh a lot of these types of products only really become relevant at the higher income level because you're paying the higher tax rate to begin with. So it's, mm-hmm. it's more relevant in that way. And then also sometimes these sorts of products have minimum investment levels, you know, where a typical, uh, you know, a lot of these types of funds for accredited investors will have a minimum investment of hundred thousand dollars or $250,000. So is there, is there a particular, you know, scale or size at which it's worth doing if you can, you know, contribute X dollars over time below mm-hmm. that level, you know, it, it doesn't really have economy of scale or, you know, it doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, sure. So it, it, and it all depends on, um, what the primary desired focus is. If if structured for just a pure accumulation vehicle, you know, I, I, I call it, describe it like a flying tin can. Like you want to put as much gasoline in, in, in this as possible, you know, put as much fuel in <laughs> this as like possible, that. right? But you're really not concerned about the death benefit. It's really more about how do we make this, how do we make this grow as much as we can? Um, really the entry there at an absolute minimum is about a $35,000 uh, uh, per year and, and a commitment at a minimum of seven years. Um, that's the, that's the bare minimum. From a, a qualification standpoint, not even before we get to like what dollar amount to be able to uh, to participate with, but just from a qualification standpoint, again, using that just accumulation focus, bare minimum, bare minimum is is a million dollars in net worth or two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of adjusted gross income. That's a bare minimum qualification. Now that is that is a certain platform with a certain structure that has a lot of guard rolls around it that, you know, they're not going to get hurt. Traditional premium financing uh, really should be reserved for folks with $10 million net worth and above, um, where other collateral beyond the life insurance policy is going to be required to be placed, put up as, as a risk. Um, and, and typically with those, with those programs, you're looking at, you know, anywhere from 50 to a hundred thousand dollars of client contribution, and that's going to be levered up, you know, three or excuse me, five to seven X at a minimum to be able to get, uh, the the type of benefit that you'd like to be able to see out of utilizing premium financing. So, um, two different, two different arenas though. You know, one is an an accumulation focus where we'll actually employ that strategy with, with professionals that are that are high earners that may not have been doing it long enough to to stack the chips to be able to get that yeah, ten million dollars of net worth yet, but they're making you know they're making three four five six hundred thousand dollars a year, um and and putting away good money uh, and like the idea of being able to get an asset like this in their portfolio, and then on the other end of that spectrum or you're doing some serious estate planning you're utilizing the asset to be able to offset some tax liability or to create some liquidity to be able to 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 suit some other other needs in a, in the time when when uh you know there's a passing of of generation 1 going into generation 2
1: understood so it sounds like essentially uh you know like many kinds of alternative investments the you know that initial barrier to entry is is high net worth accredited investor that type of net worth And then there's this whole other product segment or strategy that's more appropriate for very high net worth, I would say. Uh, And I'm guessing, you know, family offices, ultra wealthy folks um, are, you know, familiar with these, using these. Is there, I guess, is there a way to, uh, you know, life insurance and these types of strategies, to me, they're always a little different because, like with real estate, you can always look at IRR. Or, you know, with with other types of investments, you know, annual returns over time. Is it is it apples to apples when you compare the returns, the you know, the wealth, the growth inside this product? Are you able to even compare it apples to apples with other types of investments like a stock and bond portfolio? Or is it is it different? And I, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, what are the returns? You know, if if you invest, let's say a half million bucks over seven yep. years into one of these. What can you expect in terms of of growth?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and and oftentimes, you know, you can certainly point to what what the growth, what what a what a rate of return would look like on the growth of, within that policy, mm-hmm. but I I think that where that is certainly important. And 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 typically, just to answer the question, it's typically high single digits to low double digits. It's like I, the way I the way I socialize it with a lot of folks, a lot of high net worth folks, is like, hey, just kid, look at this as a very high yielding bond. If we if we structure this properly, that's how you should look at it as part of your portfolio, and and allow that to complement some other things that you're doing. But where I think that. Oftentimes, it's missed on when you're looking at pure just the the, the growth rate that's uh, that's occurring within the accumulation of the policy. It's really the de- decumulation of it. So when you're accessing income out of it in the in the future, that mm-hmm. I think is really a huge, tremendous asset to uh, a reason of of doing this. You know, so a reason to be able to look at this as an asset, I should say. And and what I mean by that is if you're doing it and structuring it properly, you can utilize something that's called a participating policy loan. And, and what that is, is when you're, you're accessing value from the life insurance policy, utilizing this loan, you're not taking a withdrawal from the, so you're not removing that value from the policy. So you're still able to get the growth. So think of it like a, a taxable investment account that you have an asset back line of credit tied to. It, when you get a return in that investment account, that investment account, the, the full value of the investment account is going to see that, that, that growth in that return. It's not necessarily going to be the net between the, the asset back line of credit and what the value, what the remaining value of that investment account is. Very similar to what is in a, happens in a life insurance policy using a policy loan. When you take that policy loan and you access the policy for income using that policy loan, you're not removing that value. To you as a withdrawal, you're so when the policy has performance, that full the full value of that policy is performing and compounding over time. i see
1: it's it's continuing to compound so in it essentially you're
0: going to be able to get much more out of that type of asset,
1: yeah, it's going to grow off of it's going to grow off of its sticker value or whatever, yeah. not not what you've um,
0: exactly yeah, and so in comparison, if you're looking at a at a traditional asset, a traditional investment account or, or or a uh, or a retirement plan qualified asset, when you when you take a withdrawal from that asset, it's gone. It's it's, it's lost. Like it's not there anymore. It's no and, longer compounding at that. Yeah. Point. And so when you have when you have performance, it's really performing on what's what's remaining. That that is a hidden. That's a real hidden or not say hidden. Overlooked benefit of utilizing life insurance policy as a retirement vehicle, is is because of that feature. And and plus, it's coming out tax free. So, growing tax free is coming out tax free as long as you're structuring it in that way, uh, and you're still getting the benefit of that value that you're taking, getting access to and the in the growth of the policy moving forward. It's it's a tremendous way to be able to access the
1: money. Understood. Well, uh, you know, you're you're very transparent. I guess the way we even started talking about this product, where you mentioned. You know, there's a lot of ways to go wrong with it. Uh, I appreciate that's it. usually, you know, that's that's not how a sales pitch starts. You know, that's more like you're you're just telling us, hey, here's the real deal with with this product segment. So if if I'm a high net worth investor and I'm interested in this, you know, what are some of the more common pitfalls that I should look out for, or potential mistakes that are you know that you see over and over that I should be avoiding?
0: Sure, you know Andy. I like to sleep at night, and so I'm I'm always very <laughs> transparent about what you know what we've got going on here. So when when clients are getting involved with us and working with our firm, we like we like for them to. And I use this phrase all the time. I like them to know where the edge of the pool is. And so if you have if you can't for some reason you get a cramp or you can't swim or whatever it is, you can get to the edge very quickly. And so they need to know what what their exposure is. Um, how things can go wrong is a lot of. Premium finance policies and a lot of um, a, a lot of a lot of firms out there in the past, over the last call it uh, before the past eighteen months, let's say, um, interest rates were extremely low, so cost mm-hmm. of capital was extremely low, and so all of a sudden, you know, things when you put it on an illustration look extremely, I mean, look amazing when you're looking at it at a low interest rate environment. With the market still performing extremely well, and you're so you're getting your cost of capital in very low, and your policies performing very well, well that works and it, and it looks beautiful. And and what has been sometimes done in the past by some firms is is a is something that's called free insurance. Uh, well, it's it's kind of like a, a referred to I should say as free insurance where. You're not only financing the premium, but you're financing the interest expense related to it, and so nothing's coming out of pocket, and so you're just capitalizing everything, and that works. That works if if interest rates are low. Mm-hmm. Um, when interest rates go up by five percent in the past year, all of a sudden that's a different trajectory, mm-hmm. you know, and and things are all of a sudden not looking great, and, and things are starting to get upside down, and things are starting to get you know a little turbulent. And so we prescribe, you know, the, the the philosophy of of always committing committing skin to the game, putting equity in, you know, and really, you know, looking to mitigate as much risk as possible. Where you can go wrong is really ratcheting up that risk and not putting equity in, not putting skin in the game, and and putting a lot more risk than than what a lot of clients really know they're putting at risk.
1: I mean, that's to me sounds like sound advice, regardless of the asset, which is. You know, beware excessive leverage for sure. And you know, anytime, e- even forget investing. I mean, heck, life. When people don't have skin in the game, incentives get skewed and things go haywire, right? Yeah. So, and 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 that's unfortunately the life insurance
0: industry, specifically the premium finance uh, uh, sector of it, is no different than any other sector or no other industry as folks took advantage. And took advantage of the situation and and projected some things that that frankly were just unrealistic. Um, and now that we're having a little turbulence, um, you know, there's some things, there's some there's some folks that are getting hurt, um, and and that's that's the that's the you know the the, the wary side of, of premium finance, life insurance, and 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 uh, some of the things
1: that can go wrong. So Jeff, I know that, you know, you have some clients who are pro athletes, but, you know, we were talking earlier and you said most of your client base is actually not pro athletes. You know, a lot of higher income professionals, folks of that nature, you know, do you see, is, is this, you know, premium finance life insurance, is this, is this the segment that you're most excited about that you see as the most growth in the future? Are there any other areas within life insurance or within your wheelhouse? that you know yeah. you're keeping an eye on or that you think uh, especially from that tax advantage perspective that HNWI should be looking at?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um so for before I go there, I, I mean I think that I mentioned that the reason why I got into this business was was because of of pro athletes and the guys that I was in the locker rooms with over the years. And I think that, you know, ultimately it's a great savings plan. It's almost like a forced savings plan for them. You know, if you can get them in the one athletes got a lot of great things working for them with, with life insurance. They're, you know, they, they're highly insurable so they can put, you know, you can get a decent amount of insurance on them. That's important so that you can force um, more money into the contract. As we talked about earlier about, you know, the formula to be able to arrive to how much you can put into a life insurance policy, but also to young and, and the insurance cost for, for them is is extremely low and they got a a long runway. So, you know, I, I I think that every professional athlete should have a life insurance policy. You know, regardless of the fact it has nothing to do about again, nothing to do about the death benefit. I mean, it's a death benefit; it's nice, but it's really securing great tax code, Um, and and it's getting it's getting them in an asset that 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 can you know really really pre- protect and, and and kind of keep them in a really great position. Re- re- related to other kind of uses for the for you know life insurance and leverage. um, yeah, you know, so we're historically been a premium finance firm, but where we started um, this past uh, winter started looking at it, and, and frankly, it was me looking at the industry, looking at the conditions in the market, concerns over interest rate risk. You know, I felt that clients, regardless of how much how much how liquid they were, or how much they were worth, you know, going to want to hold some dry powder to be able to be ready to pounce when the things were right, and and so I felt like the non qualified. The non-qualified space was was going to be a little bit tougher sledding from a sales perspective and getting clients into these type of solutions. And so we looked at different ways to be able to utilize a life insurance policy and leverage. I still, you know, that's still in our DNA is to utilize leverage in some way. And so one of the ways that we're looking in, in, in doing this and executing it at a very high level, in fact, we're doing more of these now than premium finance policies is financing tax liability and utilizing the life insurance policy as the asset to secure it. So some, some, some real kind of prime examples of the way that we utilize this is, you know, kind of think of qualified plans, IRAs, 401ks, cash balance plans, folks that have, have essentially, I, I kind of say, made the, made the deal with the financial devil and where they've taken the tax defer growth and great savings vehicles, but on the way out, they're terrible. Right, and so mm-hmm. as you're accessing those type of assets, the, the
1: non Roth, everything but the Roth, right? Yeah, yeah, uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> but you got to get, but in that situation, and we can certainly talk about that too. Is you got to get to the Roth first? You got to pay the piper to get to the Roth first, you know. Yep. And so on a on a conversion, um, but but so you're you're made you made that financial uh, deal with the devil with the, with the financial devil, and you're having to deal with that tax consequence on the back end, and so. We'll use the we'll use the life insurance policy, and we'll we'll take a distribution out of a qualified plan. So distribute out of the qualified plan, get it into this life insurance policy, and then all of a sudden, instead of t- instead of paying the tax out of pocket from the proceeds of the distribution, we'll finance those tax lives, and you just got a lot more working for you. Hmm. And and it's all it's a much more when you look at it, kind of side by side. Do I leave the money in the qualified plan, or do I do the Roth conversion? You know, what are the things that I need to do to, to you know, maximize, maximize, you know, the value that you're going to, that you're going to retain back, you know, from all that growth over the years. And we'll show, we'll show in, a, in, a, in some really great uh, back-tested models to be able to show, hey, looking at it here, you know, keeping it there, looking at a Roth conversion or, or doing, we call it enhanced tax advantages, the program. This is something that's going to create a lot more for you. You're going to have a couple of different benefits, and it really ties into what I was talking about: how you access access the money. When you access the money from the qualified plan, you're taking a withdrawal, you're taking a distribution. You don't get growth on that on that portion moving forward, and you got to pay tax. Uh, on the life insurance side, using using that life insurance policy as the vehicle, when you finance that tax liability, you get the money into the pl- into the life insurance program when you access that money in the future, it's growing tax-free, but it's also coming out tax-free and you're taking it as a policy loan. So you're not going to lose the value of that growth moving forward. Um, and and really the, the arbitrage there, the, the question I get often too, is, that, is it the cost of capital versus the growth in the policy? And that's where you're looking at the arbitrage, right? Is the cost of capital versus the growth? In... There's that arbitrage, but the really the bigger arbitrage is paying the tax or financing the tax. Mm-hmm. So 40%, or eight percent, or whatever the finance rate is at the time, and that arbitrage compounded over time is really what's creating the advantage for a lot of our clients with this particular program. And so, we'll we we'll use it there financing tax liability, get getting assets out of a qualified plan. We'll also lump sum tax liability. So think of like selling, selling an asset, selling a business, selling um, a piece of real estate. Um, you know, maybe getting out of concentration risk and selling some securities and, and, and aligning elsewhere, you, you have a gain, and you don't have any, enough enough uh, harvested to be able to offset that gain. We'll finance the tax liability there, where uh, it's, it it really becomes a really strong solution for those t- type of scenarios, and we'll also use it on the front end as well. So kind of like the, we have kind of three three pieces of the puzzle there where instead of doing like a cash balance plan or a defined benefit plan, you know, where business owners are looking for tax deductions on the front end, again, making that deal with the devil and they're going to have to deal with the tax consequence later. Um, we'll, we'll end up utilizing this program to be able to, to take it in and take a tax deduction on the front end, but take it out tax-free on the back end, which makes it a really, really strong
1: compelling vehicle. Totally. I got to tell you, Jeff, my business partner, Jimmy is going to love this episode. Um, Tax mitigation strategies, combined with football. it's like this it's gonna, it's gonna probably going be its favorite episode of all time, but I know I know we're almost out of time. I, but I love all that tax mitigation stuff. And I know that tax mitigation is not everyone's favorite topic. But if there's any audience that loves that kind of talk, it is our audience here at the alternative investment podcast. So thank you for sharing that. but before we're out of time. What, go okay, no, go
0: yeah, let me jump in real quick and say one thing. So, yeah. and just to be clear, so we're not with these platforms and, and I just, because you like the way that you, you approach it, I think it's appropriate, but we're not mitigating the tax. So we're still financing. it so we're financing the tax, we're paying the tax. And so like, sometimes people might think we're using some obscure tax code or some loophole or some, the cool thing is government's going to love this because we're actually paying the IRS is going to love this because we're paying the tax. We're just financing it. Um, it's not coming out of the client's proceeds. It's not coming out of the client's pockets, but it is, you know, we are financing it and we are paying it. So it's not necessarily mitigation. We are, we are, we are paying it. We are paying the taxes. It's not coming out of the client's pocket.
1: Personal liability mitigation, personal tax liability mitigation. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And yeah. for our, for our IRS listeners, um, yeah, that, that note is very important. You're still collecting the same amount. It's just yeah. coming from different places. different sources. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, Jeff, you're you're a true Renaissance man. I have to say, just even even now hearing that you're a liberal arts major in college, I'm like, this guy is a true Renaissance man. You have a lot of interests and passions, uh, and you're you're an entrepreneur, not only a former pro football player, business entrepreneur, also a social entrepreneur. I want to ask about the Fane House. So, uh, a lot of athletes have charities or foundations, uh, but I think the Fane House is really unique. Could you tell us a little bit about it? How how did it start?
0: sure. Um, it, 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 I'll start with saying it's, it's the most rewarding thing we do. Um, and so I own, I own businesses in downtown Orlando. I'm I'm in the restaurant, real estate and, and uh, bar industry as well. We, I, I, that was, that was my first business that I got into. I opened up a bar in Akron, Ohio, uh, years ago, uh, my third year in the NFL. And, but I own the businesses that I own in downtown Orlando, downtown Orlando has a very, um, a serious homeless population, uh, episodic where, you know, this is not this, this there, there is major issues where you're seeing the same folks there year after year after year. Um, and, and so initially what I wanted to do is try and help that, that, that population. And, and unfortunately, or fortunately, um, you know, my attorney at the time said, you know, how are you going to, identify, you're going to spend so much time trying to identify the ones that actually want the help. You're not going to be able to get, you know, do the actual help. And, and, and that really sunk, sunk with me. And so, um, I I happened to be running in the same circles with a, a gentleman named Jeff Sharon, who was at the time sitting on the board of children's home society of Florida and children's home society of Florida uh, does adoption services, single mother services, uh, foster services. And so, but it's everything 18 and under. So nothing, you know, 18 years and over, that's where they, they fall off. And so he knew of what I was looking to try and do. He educated me on the, on this demographic of kids aging out of foster care. And For the kids that age out of foster care, just even in our small local community here in central Florida, in Orlando, tri-county areas, 400 a year age out of foster care of that 400, two out of three experience extended homelessness in the first two years. So you're talking about 18 years, 18 year olds that were in the foster system in the United States and in a relatively great community here in central Florida, homeless between 18 and 22 out of three of those 400 a year. One out of three are incarcerated and, and really the first number drives the second number. They just start doing what they got to do to get by. Um, and so for me, I identified the fact in communication. like, man, I can I can still help that demographic that I initially wanted to help. And I can just be proactive with it. So mm-hmm. instead of waiting for them to become homeless, let's get to them before they're homeless. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up uh really raising money on an idea for four years. We launched the program um about uh twelve and a half years ago now. Um it's a it's a we have a facility here in Central Florida that houses 10 kids at a time. It's it's not necessarily a group home style where they're all in one bedroom. They all have their own individual bedroom suites with their own bathrooms. Um and we're we we are co ed facility privately funded um, and we started off as a program of Children's Home Society, but then divested as our own 501c3 and so we're, we're continuing to evolve the program. And one of the initiatives that we're doing now is we've partnered with one of our largest donors who is a blue-collar, uh, st- blue-collar uh, staffing company. And and one of the biggest issues right now in our, in our country is skilled labor and the lack thereof. And so what we're looking to do is, is to become an academy in partnership with them. And so what's cool is we can have, we can, we can, uh, train skilled labor, uh, young people in this skilled labor practice. And then he comes in and can hire them. And so it's a really nice combination to be able to collaborate really well. And so continue to evolve the program, but being a part of the program as, as the, as the residents are in there, they have to, they have to, uh, be, uh, continuing some, some source of, of education. Uh, it doesn't matter either. We're not necessarily saying go to college We're saying, Hey, you need to progress. You need to be something to become self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. They have to be, have some type of employment. They have to, they have to give back themselves. So they have to provide social service and uh, they have to take part of our, of our, uh, uh, of our life skills programs. Other than that, they're adults and we're treating them as so. And so it's, it's a really cool program. We, we're really we're, we're like i said on the front end it's the, it's the most rewarding thing we're doing on a daily basis we see a lot of success out of it we're going to tonight we actually are going to one of our residents just graduated uh got her uh AA degree and so we're going to her graduation tonight and we're extremely you know proud and excited about that and so we're we're developing young people with the fane house that's that at, at the end of the day that's what it's all about uh, and that's and that's been around t- 12 years jeff it's going on t- yeah 12 and a half years Wow. Um, and, and looking to expand it and grow it uh, is something that we're, we're you know, really passionate about. We, we house 10 right now. Part of the ev- evolution of this also, too, is looking to do little tiny homes on an adjacent property. Again, to just kind of you come here and then you you go into the next spot. You're going to get the training as, as, as part of it. They can go into the, to the skilled labor training if they want um, We're going to open that to the general community, so that's that's more of a general community thing, the skilled labor deal. But it's it's a natural path of what we're doing there at the Fane House as well.
1: I, I love it, Jeff. I mean, that's really inspiring. You know, I know those those types of organizations, any type of organization, any type of entrepreneurship is not easy, right? So the, the fact that that's been around twelve and a half years, it's still evolving, it's still growing. I mean, that that's amazing. You know, I, I have to congratulate you on that. And it, as you've said, that's as meaningful as anything else in, in your life or as meaningful as anything that you're doing at, at your business. Um, I love the concept working for others. You know, I, I love, I love that conceptual bridge between the offensive line <laughs> and, you know, helping, helping folks uh, with these insurance strategies and with the fane house is all really amazing. So thank you for sharing that all with us today. Um, that being said, I know a lot of our listeners will be interested in the financial investment life insurance strategies. So where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about enhanced funding solutions and all the products that you offer?
0: Sure. So you can fi- certainly find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my profile is on there and we got certainly our company's profiles are on there, but from a, a, a website standpoint, you can go to efslife.com. Uh, that's where you'll you'll be able to find out more information on, the, on really more of the tax financing strategies and then enhancefunding.com
1: for premium financing. Sounds good. And I will be make, make sure to link to those in our show notes as well. Jeff, thanks again for joining the show today. Thanks for having me, Andy.
0: That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.